0: So have you been following all the coverage in Washington and around the country where everyone is calling for a ban on TikTok? No. No, as in you haven't been following the coverage or no, not everyone is calling for a ban on TikTok?
1: No. I don't want to talk about
0: it. I'm so tired of TikTok. This should be simple. This should be simple. Okay. I'm all for simplicity. Lay it on me.
1: Well, I mean... I've heard people say it's, you know, that that there's some sort of racist agenda against Asians, or Uh. xenophobia, or it's about national security, and ding, 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 only one of those is right. Wait, let me guess. National security. In my opinion, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, sure. I'm sure there's plenty of very racist people who are also in the argument, but they're in the argument because they like to argue. The deal is, it's a national security problem.
0: It's a total national security problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, our guest this week uh, wrote a whole book about you know the kinds of backdoors that governments uh, insist that uh, for-profit companies place in their products and services.
0: Well, you want to talk about backdoors? It's actually for some companies, it's a back chasm. Yeah, I mean, it's anal all day, every day. Okay. <laughs> thank you for sharing that with us. That woke me right up. And you know who's taking it up the
1: so it's us. Like as an average person without government secrets, the government doesn't care, but that's not why these things are there.
0: Well, there's no question you can do a spray attack, which is that you go after everybody. But the truth of the matter is you're only looking for somebody in the midst of all of this. I mean, look at the OPM hack. You're talking about 20 some million people that were caught up in this
1: these hacks these back doors they're not for you and me they are because a spy let's just say a spy or let's just say a very desirable target may have a relative a child somebody who is on those apps and that gives the government of china or the united states or iran or russia a way in and that is why those back doors are there And that is why people in the United States should not be using TikTok, because just like the United States has backdoors in products, we got to assume they have backdoors in products, too.
0: Look, the critical thing is that if any app isn't secure, if it has backdoors built in, and heaven knows we know that there are a bunch of backdoors out there, it's a security risk for you and the country. So with that... Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam, cyber raconteur. I'm Bo, cyber
2: chopstick. And I'm Travis, cyber kimchi cologne.
0: <laughs>
2: okay. Stinky.
0: You are stinky. And today we hear from Nicole Perlroth, former cybersecurity reporter for the New York Times, an advisor to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency entrepreneur, and author of the New York Times best-selling book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. Nicole, we're really excited to have you on the show. I mean, we are fanboys. We read the book. We absolutely love the book. And one of the things that jumped out at me is that you were assigned to the Arthur Salzberger's storage closet to review thousands of pages of the Snowden disclosures. Where are you coming to us from now?
3: <laughs> so, yes, I was stuck in that closet for a long time. I now, I've always lived in the Bay Area the entire time I was covering the stuff for the New York Times, which was interesting. You know, when I when they hired me, most of the people, there were a couple exceptions, but most of the people covering this where some of the large papers were just really national security reporters in D.C. who covered cyber when they were forced to. Mm -hmm. And there were people like Kim Zetter and, and Joe Men that had always been in San Francisco covering this as a tech beat for a long time. And when the Times hired me, I think they wanted me to cover it as a tech beat. So they wanted me out in the Bay Area. But increasingly, it was clear that this was a bigger national security story. So I found myself spending a lot of time in DC, developing relationships with our national security reporters like David Singer, and really made this kind of a both topic, cyber and national security. We can't, we, me, I, us, we, yes, can't say this
1: enough. I mean it. The book is called This is how they tell me the world ends. And it was a New York Times bestseller, and it is, and deservedly so. Yeah, it's not only that it's written like a spy thriller, it certainly reads like one, but it also
2: helps readers to understand how governments and intelligence agencies and other actors are using cyber warfare to gain access to our personal information, our financial data, and uh, critical infrastructure. And uh, it also includes the steps that can be taken to protect ourselves and our communities.
3: So, yeah, there were easier topics I could have taken on for my first book. I always, as I was writing it, I was like, why have I done this to myself? Every day was a different hack. I always said there should have been 12 people covering cybersecurity at the New York Times. Someone covering IP theft from China. Someone covering what Russia was doing with the the stakes in cyber sabotage. Someone covering what the NSA was doing. What cyber criminals were doing, the uptick in ransomware. But there was just me and... So every day it was a different story.
0: The example that jumped out at us was how a hacker could use that little image that pops up on your desktop when you plug in a USB drive. And
1: that was an automatic thing that you couldn't stop. And that was the entry point for that
0: hacker. Yep. Someone realized the code that tells your computer to display the icon,
3: that code wasn't protected.
1: Can you name some other really cool and surprising ways that these hacks work?
3: Printers were a big one that I loved that I sat down with a broker and that's what he said he's like oh man printers they're a gold mine you never suspect but they have access to your full network they have access to any file they create their own image you can just grab whatever people are printing off their printers that was a big one there was also there was a lot of mp3 exploits just back in the day i guess mp3s were like a gold mine for a lot of early hackers there was one that was used, it was leaked, but there was one that described the ability to essentially walk around with a suitcase that could pick up whatever someone was typing within a certain distance. Wow. And that was the exploit.
0: And these are all zero day hacks. Yeah. Can you explain to our audience what a zero day is? Okay.
3: So I'm a hacker. I find a bug or a flaw in your iPhone's iOS software. That's the zero day because the day Apple learns about it, they've had zero days to fix it, and they're in a race to fix it, patch it, get it into the next software update, you to run your software so that cyber criminals and God knows who else doesn't use it to hack you. So now I find that bug, that zero day in the software, If I can write a program to exploit it, I can do things like read your text messages, track your location, turn on your camera without you knowing about it, record you, record your surround sound. That's called the zero-day exploit.
2: Again, so there's a glitch in some software or phone or computer you're using that a hacker can exploit. And a zero-day means that zero time has been spent trying to find that glitch.
3: Yeah, and that zero-day exploit can fetch millions of dollars on this gray market from brokers who then sell it to governments. And you could see why governments would pay good money for that zero-day exploit, because it is essentially the equivalent of snapping on an invisible ankle bracelet to whoever you want to spy on. So that is what a zero-day is.
0: One of the things I love about your work is how well you communicate technical and complex ideas in an accessible way.
3: Yeah. You know, it, I really just say I was thrown into the deep end and I had actively, not only did I not know much about cybersecurity, it actively gone out of my way to know as little about it as possible. And I just thought, well, the people who cover this cover it really well. I don't, I, I never need to worry about it. They, it seems to be in good hands. And the Times hired me, despite the fact I had really actively tried to convince them to hire other people. and. <laughs> I think what they knew, which I didn't know at the time, was that it's actually an asset in many ways to come into a subject like this with fresh eyes. And I think a lot of the people who were covering it, I guess you would say they were more prosecutorial than I was in in terms of their interview and reporting style. I really came at this from the perspective of someone who didn't know anything and wanted to learn. And I always said, Thank you for that explanation. Now can you do it as if I'm your 7-year-old daughter? Because I have to now turn around and translate everything you just said for people whose understanding of this topic is really that of a 7-year-old child.
1: Your sort of willful not knowing so much about a cyber. Did that actually help you develop sources? Your sources are super impressive.
3: Yes, definitely. How so? How did that how did that help? I think there are a lot of people who would be afraid to say, at this point in their career, now explain it to me like I'm seven years old. By that point in their career, I think they would assume everyone knows that they know everything that needs to be known. So, But I really came at this as someone who truly was a student and... There were a lot of people in cyber who I think felt the same frustration I felt at a certain point, which is we need to get everyone to understand this to start hacking our way out of this. Because I always say if cybersecurity were purely a technical problem, then it would have been solved 20 years ago. You know, the the technical community would have solved it, but they didn't. And I don't think it's necessarily because they failed. It's just I think they failed at their communication style. Because really to fix this requires that we, the everyday person stops clicking on phishing emails, stops reusing passwords, turns on multi-factor authentication patches. And no one was really taking the time to the, to communicate to people what the stakes of that laziness, for lack of a better word, what those stakes were and that the stakes were getting higher. Wow. And I, there were people in high places who felt that frustration, who understood that there was a disconnect here and wanted to explain it to people like me. And, uh, maybe it told me more than they should have in the process.
2: And is that what motivated you to write the book?
3: Most of what was in the book in some way, shape or form was covered by me in the New York times, sometimes on the front page of the New York times. And even I had a hard time tracking the through line here. I, you know, I wrote the book because there was that. I think that this was screaming for a narrative. It was screaming for some hand holding from someone who wasn't technical like me. And um I I just wanted every everyday people to understand that this was happening. And also I just I thought it was time that we have some of these difficult conversations around things like zero-day disclosure or hoarding, because increasingly these attacks were ruining everyday people's lives this is no longer a game you know there's so many different examples and it was funny i think i say this in the book that when you ask when i would ask zero day brokers or hackers can you name your favorite exploit that you ever purchased or developed they would like get this twinkle in their eye And discuss like the first time their kid rode a bicycle. The creativity, truly the creativity involved in not only finding the inroad, the zero day, but then crafting these programs and then making sure that this exploit worked when you needed to and didn't crash the system on the other side. Just the pride that went into that work was immense. There was an exploit leaked in the shadow brokers leak that became famous called Eternal Blue. Because it was picked up in the WannaCry ransomware attacks that North Korea did on everyone, and then the NotPetya attacks from Russia on Ukraine that then hit companies like Merck, et cetera. And when I went back to the NSA and people who worked there at the time, I said, "How could you guys not disclose this? You know, because based on their own measures, their own criteria of whether they keep or turn over a zero day for patching, the big ones are." how widely used is the software impacted? In an Eternal Blue's case, it was Microsoft Windows. The other is, how damaging could this be if it falls into the wrong hands? We saw with the North Korea and subsequent Russia and then cyber criminal attacks that it was very damaging. So I went to them and I said, how did you, why did you hold on to this thing? And for so long, because based on these interviews, it was clear to me they held on to it for more than five years. And they said to me, it was really one you won't believe you wouldn't believe what we were getting with this thing. If we showed you any of the intelligence that we were able to collect, it would you would never seriously consider turning this thing over to Microsoft for patching. And then they said two, the amount of investment that we put into designing this exploit was immense. You know, we spent months finding the zero day, but then we called it, I think they called it eternal blue screen at the NSA for a while because when they would try and use it, it would crash systems on the other side and just cause their systems to go blue. And that's a no-go when you're in the intelligence business, because you never want your target to know that there's something funny going on with their device. They said, really, it was the investment required to, to home this thing so that it was seamless and invisible on the other end, and that they spent so much time working on it that once they got it to work and once they saw the intelligence it could collect, there was no way that they ever were going to turn it over for patching.
2: So, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, you are.
2: Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data
1: already out there, but is there something that you can do?
2: Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis.
0: I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online.
2: Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if
1: all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get twenty percent off is to go to joindelete.me. dot com slash wth and enter promo code WTH at checkout.
0: That's joindelete.me. dot com slash wth promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing, and I need to make split-second financial decisions, and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks, and I trade options, and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. So you write a little bit about Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald in the book. Are they modern-day Pandoras?
3: Were they a catalyst? Uh, were, were the Snowden leaks a catalyst? I yes. Once once he cracked this open, this is all we talked about for a year. And it created a much deeper focus on the relationship between the tech industry and the government. It created questions around privacy versus security, about process by which the NSA can spy on people domestically, the metadata collection And I think probably the most damaging revelation to come out of all of it was diplomacy, was the fact that we were spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone. On Zero Days and the Zero Day Market in particular, which was the focus of my book, no, I don't think that they played that big of a role. I talk about it in the book because by then I'd written about this market a little bit for the New York Times and I was already on it. So I was looking in the documents for any reference to zero days. And really all I found was these spreadsheets that were sort of, you know, they would name like a Oracle device or a Facebook service or whatever, and it would have a check next to it. And you could only assume that means we've got an in. Yeah. And then there were sort of these loose references to our third-party providers, third-party partners who could provide us these capabilities. But I don't even think, if you did a search for the word zero day... In the Snowden leaks, I don't think you'd even find anything. Now, in terms of their motivations, I don't understand Glenn Greenwald. I think he went so far left, he went Russian. He's so far left that I actually, I do wonder who, at the
1: end of the day, I think Glenn Greenwald has Glenn Greenwald's point of view, and that's it.
3: Once you're that insulated and you become so certain of your views and your only real interaction with others is on Twitter. Dangerous place to be, I think, mentally. And then Snowden, I don't think he intended to end up in Russia, if we give him the benefit of the doubt. But yeah. there's no doubt in my mind whether intentionally or not he is a Russian asset today.
1: Uh, yeah. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it, because that kind of takes out, takes you don't even need to have the argument. Because It's just unlikely that he's untouched by Russian tech.
3: Here he is. He's in Moscow telling everyone they're idiots for saying that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And then he takes a hiatus from Twitter and he comes back to do what? Criticize the U.S. government. And we've never seen him talk critically about someone named Vladimir Putin, whether that's out of fear or whatever it is. He is a Russian asset.
2: I think one of the main questions I have about that is you do mention the boomerang effect uh, quite a bit. And in terms of uh, once the NSA or once the U.S. government develops one of these cyber weapons, then it gets out of their control. It comes back to a uh, whack them in the face. Have other governments experienced that? Or is that just more of a uh, more specific to uh, the U.S. government at this point?
3: In the intelligence community, I think the phrase they use is you use it, you lose it. It's not like a bomb where it just detonates. It gives everyone, including your target, the ability to reverse engineer it and retrofit it for their own purposes. And the best example is obviously the leaks, the shadow broker leaks from NSA, where they it, it has been used by our enemies. Stuxnet, whether some of the exploits or the code itself was necessarily used against a target in the U.S., but that code, once it got out, once it fled the coop, infected hundreds of thousands of systems, including at Chevron.
0: So, Travis, for our listeners, can you explain what Stuxnet was, is? Sure. In brief, it
2: was a a type of malware that was made to specifically target a single Iranian nuclear plant and to destroy their centrifuges.
1: One of the things about this particular worm was the way that it was constructed so that it was built to only work in a very specific situation, specifically the Iranian nuclear enrichment spinners or whatever you call them. And somehow that Stuxnet worm got out of the facility, even though it was air-gapped, and that's what we're talking about.
0: Travis, I know you're dying to tell us, and I know this is fun for you, so who was responsible for designing Stuxnet? Uh,
2: It was a collaboration between the U.S. and Israel.
3: Yeah. Stuxnet was clearly developed with some lawyers standing over the programmer's shoulders saying, you better make damn sure that this thing only inflicts destruction on this exact configuration of centrifuges at Natanz and nothing else. As it zoomed its way around the world, it just kind of sniffed but never bit. But there's no doubt it showed our enemies the destructive potential of code. And what did we see next? Started seeing the attacks on Saudi Aramco from Iran and on Sands Casino from Iran. And North Korea on Sony. Um, How did it get out of Iran? We don't know. The theories are, you know, someone plugged that same USB stick that infected on somewhere else. Another theory is a U.S. theory that, I think it's Biden's theory personally, that the Israelis took it too far, that whatever their latest update was, it was so aggressive that it fled the coup. But no one knows And it's just, its the more I think about it, I don't even think I say this in the book, although I kind of line up the chronology to make the case. It really was a digital Manhattan project in reverse because it was a counter-nuclear proliferation effort. It saved lives if we hadn't done Stuxnet and brought the Israelis in, and I'd love to know more about how that got together. But I think the idea was we have to this will be our project. but if we don't bring in the Israelis, what's the point? Then they're just going to go bomb Natanz and then we're stuck in World War three no matter what we do. You know, it kept soldiers from coming home in caskets because I remember, actually in in two thousand and six, in a totally previous life, I worked for Ted Kennedy's office for his foreign policy office. And part of my day job was every day I would brief him on how many soldiers had died that day in Iraq. And that was part of my job. So I remember what the political appetite was at that point for getting into a third war in the Middle East. It was zero. So the fact that they designed this program to do surreptitiously what Israel wanted to do with bunker buster bombs and what we would have inevitably been dragged into, yeah. you could think this code saved lives. The problem, you know, as you framed it, your question is, we don't know how it got out, but it got out. And when it did, it showed the world the destructive potential of code. And it set new norms because you'd get into some serious trouble if you just went and bombed Natans. But if you go in and basically have similar impact with code, you can probably get away with it.
1: It's totally bonkers if that you think, you you know, it's not okay to use bunker busters, but if you just want to, like, mess with their heads for a year and make their machines spin out of control, totally fine.
3: And, you know, some people say that was one of the stated priorities, was shake their confidence in their ability to enrich uranium and create these weapons, that you get them to the negotiating table. Didn't it, ultimately? And it did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: From your experience and all you have learned in all the interviews, do you have in your mind an idea of who might be the best offensive and defensive cyber country in the world?
3: I don't think there's an obvious answer. I think we are definitely still the top dog on cyber offense. I think no one's pulled off another Stuxnet. But Russia's gotten dangerously close, never more so than with this tool that the US de- government declassified a year ago called Pipe Dream, which is essentially a Swiss army knife of critical infrastructure hacking tools that you can use to hijack a pipeline or liquid, liquid natural gas network and make it really hard for the target to basically get up to speed. So I think we're still tops, you know, Israel right there with us probably. And then I think Russia's caught up quite significantly. But it doesn't really matter that we're the top dog on offense when we're also the most targeted nation state on Earth by cyber attacks. (laughs) I don't know who's the best at cyber defense, but it's not us. So we see some of the best cyber defense tools come out of that unit 8200 and that we haven't seen more serious attacks against Israel or the ones that we have seen were mitigated before the point of, of impact. It's that's n- nothing to sneeze at. But you know what they have that we don't have is they have all of their enemies <laughs> surrounding yeah. them. We still yeah. act like we're on this island separated or protected by two oceans that don't exist on the internet. So yeah, that's true. This <laughs> compromise they've made on privacy, you know, they're willing to have the government inside private sector networks in some cases defending them from attacks in real time. After Snowden, the idea that we would let the NSA or Cyber Command into, say, PG&E's network, just even if they were there to defend cyber attacks, would cause just a huge storm. We would never get there, especially after Snowden.
0: Now that you've had all this experience, you've lived through all of this, what are some of your own cybersecurity protocols?
3: I would just start by saying, I know my weaknesses. It took me like five minutes to find QuickTime on my computer before we started. So I know that I am not the most, let's just say, technically skilled in the space. So I don't even want to try. So in a lot of cases, I just take the most important things to me and make them analog. So, for instance, I have two cars. One of them is a Mini from the 90s that has no software in it, essentially. So, there's no navigation. You know, no one can get into my car and track where I'm going. If I have to go meet a secret source, I just don't bring my phone and I take the Mini. Now the Mini is going to be implanted with spyware Once it's yeah. up there, <laughs> that's one of my tricks. The other is, I didn't have a baby monitor. Which is hell for a new mother, but it's because I was, I got to know Ahmed Mansour in the United Arab Emirates, who we later discovered had his baby monitor hacked by the government and it scared me off of ever using a baby monitor. It's stuff like that. And then for this, for everything I need, like email, I use, you know, advanced multi factor authentication and a physical security key. And for, for, Text communications, I use Signal, but I really take my most sensitive conversations offline. You know, I used to have sources where we would meet at the same place on the same Tuesday every quarter. We couldn't drive there. We couldn't Uber there. I was not allowed to bring my phone or my laptop. I could bring a pen and paper, and we would always choose the table with the seats that both face the entry or exit.
1: But you could, and then you could always just call various agencies to ask for the tape later.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Or as we say,
0: you use the New Jersey approach to meetings. Never have your back to the front door.
3: So, yeah, I mean, that's what I do. And I had these moments where I could have seen myself going full, what's her name, Carrie from Homeland. It's like at one point, my my cable box for the TV in my bedroom was making a lot of weird noises in the middle of the night. And I ripped it out. (sighs) And I literally said something like, F you, China, or take that, China. And then in the morning the next day, I'm looking at this cable box strewn on my bedroom floor thinking, oh, man, I can't go down that road. So I just decided I can't not play in this space. I still need to order diapers on Amazon. Like, I still need to order things online. I can't hide my physical address. But I can make it much harder for cyber criminals or nation-states to track my most sensitive communications, you know, which are my crown jewels. And so when it comes to those, I'll go to these extreme lengths. But for everything else, I just do the best I can.
1: So for the normal stuff, for the surveillance economy we all live in, you live in it too. But when it comes to your day job, you actually
0: walk, you operate more like a spy. Yeah. Through all of this, have you ever been scared for your own well-being?
3: So here's where I pull up a conversation I had with our mutual friend, Phil Taubman. So, Phil has been a great mentor to me. He is the former uh, DC bureau chief, he's the former Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. And he lived in Moscow with his two kids who were preschool age during the Cold War. And he would tell me that sometimes when he would drop his kids off at preschool, the KGB would follow and make a loud noise of it. And sometimes they'd go on these day trips or weekend trips and they'd come home and their phone would be ringing incessantly when they walked in the door and they suspected it was someone calling constantly to see when they would pick up when they were home again. And I think even at some point found some dirty liquor glasses in the sink or something like that. So basically he would tell me these stories and he said, Nicole, I think you should assume the same I think that you should assume that you're being followed, particularly in the digital space. And sometimes these people who are following you will make some noise, but nothing ever happened to me in Cold War Russia. Nothing ever happened to my kids. I would assume the same for you. I would assume that these people will follow you. Sometimes they're going to try and scare you, but if they were to actually do something, it would be a pretty big incident, an international incident and something that these same people would want to avoid. So I always took those words to heart. I think when I was most scared was uh, when I describe in the book, being in Argentina, coming home, and finding out that someone had been in my room and moved my laptop out of the safe, or had shifted its position in the safe. Or at one point, someone in the New York Times security team got a tip from one of their former colleagues in the intelligence community that there was someone on the dark web offering a quarter million dollars to anyone who could get them into my phone or email. Wow. Yeah. And then actually, I just did the paperback. So I write right in the afterward about how I got a postcard in the mail. And it was a weird postcard. It was like this weird cartoon. And this guy's pointing at something. And it says the DNC and sol- uh, solar winds, I think. And it said it was Russia. And on his jacket says the New York Times. And it was really weird. And it was the return address was Niagara Falls or something like that. Hmm. I thought, oh, God, this is one of these like weirdos. I don't know. Some someone in America who's fixated on calling journalists the enemy of the people. And there was just like some cultural translation issue with it. Anyway, sat on my account kitchen counter for a while. I looked at it. My husband looked at it. Our kid looked at it. My nanny looked at it. No one really got what the joke was. And and then. Later Kevin Mandia disclosed to Reuters that between the time he discovered solar winds and they publicly attributed it he got these postcards in the mail to his home and so I asked him is this what the postcards is this what the postcards looked like and he said yes mm. and I guess FBI had attributed the postcards to the SVR the Russian intelligence mm. agency so long story short I got a postcard from the Russian intelligence agency we, that's a badge of honor. We never have. We were creeped out about it enough that we threw it away, but I really regret it because I would have loved to have framed it and kept it. But, the, well, Nicole, you don't know. You may have taken
1: the one ply of the paper off and found a radio transmitter.
3: That also, it was very comforting to know it was just a postcard. If that had been in an envelope, it would have really freaked me out. But the point is, I look at it like the liquor glass left in Phil's sink. The little bit of noise. And I just try not to be scared because I think you can really go down some rabbit holes. And I've seen some people in this space go down some rabbit holes and not come out the other side. You just have to keep your wits about you, but also keep your humor about you.
0: and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring,
1: get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike L e c t r i c ebikes. dot com.
0: Before we go, how do you feel about Chat GPT and how
3: it's affecting zero days? Chat GPT is being used to write zero day exploits as we speak. That's my answer. Is I just I wrote a book. It took me seven years about the people who are skilled enough to write these exploits, and the potential and how they're getting into the wrong hands. And I say in my note to the readers at the beginning, I'm really in a race against time to get this book out before we see. And I think I mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning, and here we are with artificial intelligence has been mainstreamed. It's now able to write zero day exploits, and from what I hear, pretty decent ones that will only get better with time. On machine learning, the potential for deep fakes is something I'm terrified of, especially going into the next couple election cycles and just on the security risk from ai my big takeaway and it's technical but it's not at all it's complexity increases vulnerability we don't even know how to test ai for security risks there was a i was at a dinner with a guy whose company all they do is testing vendors and software for security risks he said i don't know how to test ai for security risks i've asked others in my industry in this little cottage industry i'm in do you know how to test artificial intelligence or these algorithms for security risks? And nobody does. And so there you go. We are about to enter a nightmare. And I was happy to see Facebook move from foo- move fast and break things to seeing graffiti on the wall at their headquarters last time I was there saying, move slowly and fix your SHIT. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any qualms about marching. Into the metaverse, you know, around their investments, just Silicon Valley's investments in AI. It just feels like, shouldn't we pause (laughs) for a moment and ask ourselves, what are the downsides? What are the potential risks we're introducing by migrating to this new technology before we just go full bore on it? And yet we've seen, we've had that lesson so many times. And yet we just moved to Chat GPT 4 and it's already, Passing the LSAT, and I'm sure being used to write even better zero day exploits. So I'm very scared. And I frankly, I don't want to raise my son in this. I'm pregnant now. I think that every day. I don't want them to grow up in this world, and I don't know how to slow it down.
1: One of the things that you talk about in the epilogue of your book. Is something that we often discuss and call security by design. You don't call it that, but you do discuss the crucial mission, crucial thing that everyone needs to be thinking about in the, in, in the industrial sector and military: that to build security in from the very beginning, from the very first line of code you write, you're thinking about security and keeping zero-day exploits out. That that ship has sailed already for for AI hasn't
3: it yeah no i'll tell you something interesting that's not in the book which is um i would ask zero day brokers i came into contact to for the book at the end of our interview i'd always ask the same question is there anything you haven't been able to break and one of them who's in the book adriel desotel said yeah there actually is one green hill software i think they're based in santa barbara you should talk to them so i reached out to them and i thought oh this will be good for my epilogue you know Woman, female journalist drives down the coast on Highway One to Santa Barbara to the sort of Shangri La of secure by design. <laughs> <laughs> but that, they never got back to me, but then my book came out, and I heard from them a lot, saying basically, "Why weren't we in this book? And why haven't we talked yet?" Well, the guy who runs Green Hill is Dan O'Dowd, so he's become famous recently as being the guy who has been calling out Elon. And Tesla for self-driving cars. Yes, software.
0: yes, yes, yes.
3: Yeah. So his whole thing was listen, Nicole, I wish I could tell you there was some magic to our software, why it's so secure. But it's really because one of our first customers was the Pentagon. They wanted us to design an operating system for other uh, missile delivery systems. And so we in writing this operating system, we were just checking, we were moving very slowly. We were operating almost like a monk, a monk-like focus on security and minimalism and stripping down the code to its fundamental basics, always with the question, am I checking my work? Because if this software has any bugs in it, then this missile delivery system could be used against us. So with that use case in mind, we designed the software and it ended up getting the highest security rating from the NSA and others. And he was saying this is the approach, essentially. We're never gonna take it to everything. We can't roll back on Windows and most commercial software, but this is the approach we should be taking to things like autonomous vehicles, the power grid, our pipeline network, our water storage, et cetera, and treatment. And so I'm I'm not surprised he's been out there on this campaign calling out Elon's self-driving car software. That is the future. I think there are some systems that as a society would be great if we could have conversations and say, that is so sacred. We don't need artificial intelligence in our water treatment facilities. <laughs> we don't need artificial intelligence in some parts of the pipeline. But anyway, that's just like a dream that will never happen
0: Well, Nicole, I cannot thank you enough.
3: Thank you.
0: We really appreciate it. There's the book, and it is called "This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends." You should get it.
1: And if you haven't read it, and you have it, read it. You can look for it in the uh, horror section of your bookstore,
0: Nicole. If people want to, <laughs> if people want to learn more about you, and I know you're also on the advisory board of Sissa and other really important things, where can they read up on you?
3: My, my website right now is, this is how they tell me the theworldends.com. <laughs> so you can find me there. And I'll, I haven't posted for a while, but I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Anyway,
0: have a great day. And again, unlimited thanks.
3: Well, you're the best. This is really fun.
1: Okay. So now it's
0: time for us to do our
1: tin foil swan.
0: Our paranoid takeaway to help keep you safe online.
1: All right. It is springtime, and so you know what that means, Travis. Allergies. Allergies. Ah, okay, I was not thinking that, but when aren't you allergic to something? Um, The 2nd of October through October 5th.
0: I'm pretty much allergic 24-7 to catch my drift.
1: Guys, guys, what? listen. What? I meant it's time for spring cleaning.
0: Oh. Well, wait. Let me get my little apron on oh god i didn't say that did i let me yeah do you
2: have a french made outfit
0: let me oh (laughs) (laughs) and spring and spring cleaning should apply to your digital life too absolutely
1: so this week we recommend that you go through your phone and delete any apps that you don't use anymore
0: and why would we recommend this
1: well listen every app you install on your phone or on your computer yeah yeah it increases your attackable surface, especially if you have an app that you haven't used for a while and it's not supported or updated. For instance, I have a game on my phone called Floppy Bird.
2: I actually think it's a flappy bird. A floppy bird would just be dead.
0: I think we're entering Monty Python territory here. <laughs> it's, a laden, <laughs> it's a laden floppy bird. Anyway,
1: as we learned today in this really brilliant episode, if we do say so ourselves. Fabulous. Mobile devices... And apps and ma- are major vectors for cyber attacks, malware, and everything in between.
0: Every time you install a new app on your phone, you're rolling the dice, baby. Kind of.
1: Well, not. I mean, some are some some are worse than others. I think. But one thing you can, uh, you know, you can do to stay a little safer is: there's an app on your phone you don't use, just delete it, get rid of it.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I have an app that's supposed to help me uh, diagnose the health
1: of my houseplants. <laughs> Oh, actually, I think I used that one. No.
2: Regardless, the uh, plant app had access to my camera, so if that app happened to be compromised in, a- in any way, shape, or form, it would have meant that a hacker could have had access to a camera that I have on me at all times.
0: Yeah, that's not great. No, not at all. So the message here is always be careful with any app you install, and if you're not using an app anymore, for heaven's sake, delete it.
1: Now, you can also reinstall it, right if you need it but there's no reason to keep anything on your phone no apps whatever that you're not using there's just no reason for it we, there's the possibility of getting hacked or compromised so the fewer apps you have the harder
0: you are to hack what the hack with adam levin is a production of loudtree media produced by andrew steven and travis taylor Our executive producers are Bo Friedlander and Adam Levin. That's me. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. Come back next week
2: and rate and review. It really helps people find the show.